We come now to our sermon, and we are, like I said earlier, in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you if you've ever been reading through Scripture, and you come upon a genealogy, and it's so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and your eyes kind of glaze over, and you're like, okay, begat, begat, begat. You get to the end of it, you're like, okay, now the story can start. I do it too, so don't feel any... Uh, we're, we're in the same camp there. These genealogies can be lost on us. But they're there for a reason. There's a reason why the New Testament starts with a genealogy. And that's what I want to walk through, why the Gospel of Matthew, that first book in the New Testament, begins with a genealogy, what can seem like an uh, almost boring thing to us. Before we read our passage this morning, which is just the first three verses, um, some background, some context. The ruler of Israel in the time that Jesus was born was a man named Herod. He's known to history as Herod the Great. He ruled for decades. He did incredible building projects. And he had been put there by the Roman Empire, who was ruling over Israel at the time. And he was stationed as, you are the king over this region. And the Romans called it the region of Syria. They later called it the region of Palestine, but it, was, it included Israel. And when Herod was placed in power, he faced a lot of opposition. And one of the reasons why he faced opposition is because people said, how can you rule over us as Jews when you're not entirely Jewish? He faced pushback based on his background, his family tree, his genealogy. It was a big deal to the point that the way that Herod dealt with it, the politically uh, expedient step for him, what he decided to do was have his genealogical records destroyed. So he said, this is an issue. You keep bringing it up to me. I'll just have them destroyed. You can't prove it. Now, we, we know it, it didn't work. But that was his outlook. You say, I can't rule here because I'm not 100% Jewish. My bloodline isn't pure enough for you guys. Well, I'm just going to destroy the genealogy altogether. Now, I want to compare that with this. That when we open the New Testament, when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we see a genealogy, genealogy of Jesus. It was published a couple of decades after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And at the time, the church was dealing with accusations very similar. Now, Jesus wasn't Herod. He wasn't, you know, puppet king of the Roman government. But people were saying, how can we believe in Jesus? After all, he doesn't have really the right pedigree. He doesn't have the right genealogy. They were facing accusations that Jesus wasn't actually fully Jewish, that maybe he was Samaritan, which was kind of half Jewish. They were facing accusations that Jesus uh, was actually the son of Mary who had had a relationship with a Roman soldier. So that's what they're facing. But what do we see here? What do we see here? That where Herod destroyed genealogical records, Jesus inspired Matthew to publish a genealogy. So not destroying the records, but I'm going to put it in front of everybody's face. And what we see in the, in the genealogy is not one that is crafted to prove that Jesus had the right lineage. In fact, it's pretty shocking when you look at the names about who's listed. Why would Matthew choose to list these people? Because we find people that he probably would have been better off leaving you know, 
in the family closet. There's some not great stories in the background here. We find non-Jewish people. And in one of the most shocking things, especially in the ancient world into which Jesus was born into, we find five women. Five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and his mother, Mary. And what I want to do, the mothers of Jesus, what I want to do over the next five weeks is look at each of these five women in turn to see their shocking stories, and they are shocking stories, and to see the shocking ways that God worked in their lives and in their choices to bring about his purposes, to see why Matthew included these five women and what that means for us. And so this week we're going to be looking at the story of Tamar, which I'll summarize her story. Uh, You can find it, though, in in Genesis 38. So if you're curious and you want to read when you get home, it's in Genesis chapter 38. But this this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your word. That in it, you show us who you are and what you're about, and you give us a glimpse of who we are in you, so we can walk and live in that. And So this morning, as we look at this grandmother, this mother of Jesus, Tamar, working in her shocking story, work in our hearts, Lord, to love you all the more, to see this, our grandmother, in the faith. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The story of Tamar is a difficult one, to say the least. As I said, you can find it in Genesis 38. And as I've been rereading it the last couple of weeks, preparing for this sermon, it feels just as strange to me now as it did the first time I read it. It's from an entirely different time, entirely different, different culture, completely foreign to us. It's got social rules that we struggle to understand. And so before we jump into the story as a whole, I want to give a little bit of background to understand some of the stuff that's going on. And the first one's this. The background of Tamar is wrapped up in the family story of Abraham. In the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham, and he essentially tells Abraham, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work through your family, through a descendant of yours, to overcome the power of sin. There's violence that is spread across this world. There is sin that is spread across this world. And what I'm going to do is through your family, I'm going to bless all nations, all families on earth. And what, Jesus is, or what God's going to do is work against the power of sin. He's going to cause something else to happen, grace and salvation. And that was their family inheritance. So when you read the, through the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's going on in the background. Um, is that God has made this promise. When is He going to fulfill it? So there's always kind of a comma at the end of their stories. It always ends unfulfilled. But this is going on in the background. It's not just a story of a guy and his relationship with God. God makes this promise that includes us, that includes everybody. And so that's going on in the background for Tamar's story. This is the family she married into because she marries three generations after Abraham. She wouldn't have known Abraham. He had already passed away. But she knew his son. That was her 
you know, great grandfather-in-law, I believe. Um, but anyway, she marries into this family. And so this inheritance, this promise that God had made to Abraham would still very much be a live issue in the family. It's kind of their family inheritance, what they passed down. So that's going on in the background of the story. The second thing we need to understand, and this is the kind of culturally like thing, the world they lived in, the, the social structure was completely different. Family was everything. Family was who, that was the day-to-day reality. And the head of the family was the patriarch and the matriarch, the, the, the dad and the mom. And living with them, either in their house or nearby on the same land, would be their sons and all their sons' families. And you spent all your time with your family. You lived together. You worked together. You socialized together. You worshipped together. You would interact with other families that were nearby, maybe. But it's a very agricultural, rural society where families, that was everything. And they depended on each other for survival. It mattered more than just about anything else, who your family was. Because that was your key to being able to have a livelihood. There was no, like, I'm going to grow up and go off to the big city and find myself. That did not exist. There were not structures of employment for that. You were born into your family, and you stayed with your family. And you socialized, you worshipped together. They were entirely dependent on each other for survival. And so when a son would marry... A son would marry a woman. That woman would leave her family and join the family of her husband, becoming part of the family herself. And she had, uh, she had certain what we would call today rights. In fact, the patriarch, her father-in-law, would have a social responsibility for her to the point, and this is where it gets where we can't understand, to the point that if one of the sons died and his widow and him had not had kids, she was to marry the next brother in line. To stay within the family. Land stayed within the family. The idea was this. It's incomprehensible to us, but actually this social structure still exists in certain parts of the world. But the idea was there's not certain opportunities for employment for women. And that a widow would be in great danger of being forgotten and left destitute. The patriarch of the family was the person who had the responsibility to make sure that all the people in his household were cared for. That was the job. Now, I think we can see already a number of complicated things wrapped up in this family structure. And my point isn't to say, like, we need to get back to this. That's not what God's saying either. But it's simply to point out that this way of life is the background for Tamar's story. So the background, the promise of God to Abraham and her marrying into this family. Number two, the social structure of the family under a patriarch. So Tamar marries into this family. She marries the oldest son of Judah, who was the great-grandson of Abraham. But we're told that he was a wicked man and he dies young before they have any children. So then she marries the next single brother in line, also a wicked man, and he dies young without them having any children. And suddenly, Judah looks and he has one son left. That's it. He's got one son. But this son is underage, so he can't be married yet. And so he tells Tamar, look, why don't you go back and live in your father's house? 
don't you go away? Go live in your father's house and live with him until my son's old enough and then I'll come and get you and you guys can get married. But what we find out in the story, Judah actually has no intention of doing that. He thinks actually that Tamar must be cursed. Both of my sons have married her. Both of my sons have died. She's the problem. Now, we're told in the story that her, her husbands, those sons, were incredibly wicked men. And they died. But what Judah thinks is she's the problem. She's the problem. He doesn't consider his son's wickedness the issue that may be led to an early death. No, like many women in history, Tamar is shouldered with the blame and the guilt for something that men had done wrong. So effectively what happens here is Judah abandons his responsibility for her. You can't live in my house anymore. You need to go back to your father's house. You need to go away. He forces her out of his house. He sends her miles and miles away, out of sight, out of mind. It's Tamar, Tamar who? And that's how it is for years. And years, the son comes of age and Judah does not call for Tamar. So years later, and the story picks up, and this is where it takes a truly shocking turn that offends just about every sensibility that we have. When Tamar, mistreated and blamed as a curse, cast out and put into an impossible situation, she begins to act. And there's no other way to say it, so I'm just going to say it. She disguises herself as a prostitute. She finds out that Judah is going to be nearby on business. He's coming to near where she lives on some business. And so she disguises herself, puts a veil over her face so he doesn't know who it is, as a prostitute, and she waits at a place she knows he will be. And he doesn't recognize her. He propositions her. She accepts. Then we find out that this encounter has led to a pregnancy. Tamar is pregnant, and the rumor mill starts to churn. She's pregnant, and she's showing. And it's actually worse than that. It's worse than just gossip happening. She is dragged to Judah. As far as he's concerned, he hasn't seen her in years. She's dragged to Judah, and now he decides that he wants to take responsibility for her. Now he decides... He wants to take responsibility, but he wants to take on the responsibility of condemning her. And when he finds out she's pregnant, when they tell him, he spits this out. This is a direct quote. He jumps to the harshest possible thing. Bring her out and have her burned to death. Bring her out and have her killed. It's breathtaking in its harshness. But this Judah is an important man. He's important. And he cannot take this stain on his reputation. Tamar has committed the kind of sin that good people prefer to condemn. She has lied. And she's been sexually promiscuous in a way that cannot be hidden. After all, her growing belly is telling the story. She's a person that has found herself in an impossible situation and she acted within that impossibility. I can't help but think of people who... Um, steal food because their child is at home starving. Or people like the Israelite midwives in Egypt who straight out lied to Pharaoh's face because he had commanded them to kill the Hebrew boys when they were born. Or people like in uh, 
World War II who hid their Jewish neighbors and lied to the Nazis to keep them from being dragged off into concentration camps. They were in impossible situations where someone in power over them was mistreating them and they acted within that possibility. But like I said, Judah is profoundly embarrassed that she has brought this dishonor on his good name. He is Judah, important Judah. And he will not have this woman who is in his family stain the family name. And so bring her out and have her burned to death. I need people to see that I am an upstanding moral person that takes morality seriously. Bring her out and have her stoned or have her burned to death. But it is at this moment that she reveals the truth of whose child she is pregnant with and what has happened. And when she does, his hypocrisy and his mistreatment of her becomes so clear to him. And he says this, She's more righteous than I am, since I would not give her to my son. She's more righteous than I am. The contrast in the story is between the sins of Tamar and the sins of Judah. The text does not say, go be Tamar, <laughs> put a veil over your face, pretend to be a prostitute. It's not saying that. But the contrast in the story is between these two sins. Now just based on how I react when I read it and how you probably re react when you read about this woman pretending to be a prostitute, seducing her father-in-law, is scandalous. It's absolutely scandalous. We ugh, makes our skin crawl a little bit, right? But the point of the text is that the contrast is between the sin of Tamar, the sins that good people prefer to condemn, and the sins of Judah. And it makes clear that the sin of Judah is more serious. She is more righteous than I am, is what Judah said. Judah's indifference to her his violation of her well-being and his dignity, thinking he could forget her because she has no voice and he'll have no repercussions for tossing her off to her father's house, his refusal to see his life and his family's life according to this promise that God had given that's floating in the background is a self-serving sin. And what is more serious is his wronging of her his wronging of the community by being self-protective in his own mind and casting her off as a curse instead of seeing his family inheritance as through my family, all nations in this world, all families will be blessed. His sin is far more serious. The story ends by telling us that Tamar is the son of twin boys. She has twins. And that this complicated story is wrapped up into God's greater story of redemption. God working in the darkness to make this forgotten woman and her offspring to eventually bring, 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. The truth is, when we read this story, it points forward to Jesus in some important ways that Tamar pointed forward to her grandson way down the line. In a sense, Jesus is the true Tamar. He's the, the better Tamar. And this is a good principle for when we read Old Testament stories as a whole. We're not supposed to read it and say, I'm going to be like Tamar or I'm going to be like Judah. We read it and see 
How does this develop and point to who Jesus was? How is he the fulfillment of what we see in this story? And Jesus looked into our world and he saw us, like Tamar, in an impossible situation. Trapped in sin without a way forward. And where Tamar put on a veil to hide herself. A veil to disguise herself as a prostitute. What did we read in 2 Corinthians 4? He who said, let there be light in darkness made his, the light of his love shine in our hearts. That we would know the light of the glory of God and the knowledge of Jesus in the face of Jesus. Where she veiled herself, the face of God has shined on us in Christ. Letting us know who he is and what he's about. Jesus clothed himself. The eternal Son of God clothed himself in a human nature. Not just for a moment, but forever. And Jesus is forever. God and man joined together in one person. And he serves for us as a guarantee that we are joined to God by faith. That he has overcome the sin that has separated us and cast us off from God to renew us. Tamar was voiceless, and she was powerless, and she did what she thought she had to do, but Jesus had all power. He was the very Word of God. He had the voice, not just a voice, but He used that power to act for us. And like His grandmother Tamar, He did everything He could to make sure the purposes of God not only continued, but were fulfilled. It was too important to not act. Jesus stood in our place and He took the righteous judgment of God against sin to exhaust its power, to exhaust the power of sin in every part. And He rose from the dead to give us new life. He quieted the just judgment of God against us so that we might be forgiven and transformed and given hope so that we might be what we talked about earlier in Romans 4 in our assurance of pardon passage, righteous. Now in this passage, I mentioned that Judah declares that Tamar is more righteous than I am, which was shocking then, and I think it's shocking now. He's comparing her actions to his, and he's measuring them on a scale. It's the kind of comparison I think we can find useful, thinking about what kind of sins are worse than others. And there are sins that are worse than others. You've probably heard before, you know, we're all sinners, that's true. But there are sins that are worse than others. When our sins not only harm ourselves, but they harm other people. Those are weighted more heavily. They have more of an impact. And that can be helpful. You know, I think part of the value of this passage is to show us how severe wronging other people is, especially when it's done, with some, done by somebody with great social power like Judah. He had a lot of power as patriarch of that family. So when he wronged her, it was far more weighty than her wronging him. But what Jesus offers to us in the gospel is to move beyond that, to find a righteousness that goes beyond measuring our sin against each other to see who's worse and to receive righteousness from God as a gift. So that if we are Tamar who has deceived, if we are Tamar who has a troubling sexual history or even a complicated sexual present, God offers us to find Jesus as our righteousness. 
Not to try and justify ourselves by saying, I've done some bad stuff, but not that bad. But to find our all in Him and throw ourselves entirely on the sure grace of God. So that we, if we're like Judah, who... Um, whose sins are easier to cover up or more socially acceptable, who judge people whose sins are more obvious than ours, if we are a Judah who's made decisions based on selfishness or self-preservation at the expense of others, God offers to us to find Jesus as our righteousness, to stop relying on our social standing or our status to throw ourselves entirely on the sure grace of God. Tamar is the first woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And let me just say it straight out. If I got on my Ancestry.com profile and I found out that my great-great-great-grandmother posed as a prostitute to get her father-in-law to impregnate her, I don't think I'd tell people about it. It wouldn't be something I led with. It wouldn't be in the first three sentences of the gospel about my life. You know, if I wrote a biography or somebody wrote a biography, I'm like, don't. Let's just not put that one in there. But when God inspired Holy Scripture, when He inspired Matthew to write this genealogy in a world where people were saying, we won't accept Jesus because He doesn't have the right lineage. He did not hide this story away. He refused to hide Tamar away. He highlighted it. Not to shame her, He didn't want you to flip back to Genesis 38 and giggle because it's a crazy story. But he wanted everyone to know, for now and forever, for 2,000 years of people reading Scripture, that Tamar's my grandma. And I'm not ashamed of her. He wanted us to know. Tamar's my grandmother. She's my family. And much like it speaks about in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus is not ashamed to call her family speaks about him not being ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. But he sta- Jesus is the one with the family reunion t-shirt on. He wants everybody to know who his family is. Tamar was forgotten and cast off. She was mistreated. She found herself in an impossible situation. But she was not forgotten by God. He saw her pain. He saw how she was mistreated. He, ha- he saw how she sinned as well. And his purposes to bring redemption into this world remain unchanged. Unchanged. Now you may be somebody who, like Tamar, has been mistreated by people who should have cared for you. Maybe not in the same ways, but you've been mistreated by a parent or an authority figure or a teacher, somebody who should have cared for you. Maybe you've been shouldered with the blame. You know, a lot of people, when they experience abuse by an authority figure, they wear the guilt and the blame for that. I must have done something to deserve that. You may have been cast off and forgotten. You may have been sidelined in your own life. And you may have been felt like you were forced into decisions that you did not want to make. And you may have done things to make ends meet or survive that you're not proud of. If that's true, know this morning, this Advent season... At this manger, as we stare into the incredible love of God coming to us in Christ Jesus, that that is for you. That Jesus was not ashamed of his grandmother Tamar, and he's not ashamed of you either. Your sin's not so big that Jesus is going to scoff one day. 
and think, no, that was too far. I refuse to be acknowledged to be their Savior. That will never happen. And He is able to take the brokenness of your life and your story and weave it into the greater story of what He's doing, just like He did for Tamar. You may be somebody this morning who's more like Judah, and you've mistreated people, and you have failed time and time again to care for people who God has called you to care for. And you have misused the resources that He's put into your hand for selfish motives. You may be more concerned about your own wealth or desires than you are about the community God has put you in to be a blessing to others. You may have sat in judgment of others while hiding away the reality and the depth of your own sin. And if that's true, there's grace for you too. There's grace for Judas. You can lay down the costume that you try to wear to make other people impressed with you or to make them like you. You, actual you, can find a love that already knows about your hypocrisy and is ready to free you from it. You can trade in the false community for real community, a community in the church that is founded entirely on God's love for us and not what we have and have not done. And together, us Tamars and us Judas, we can find in Jesus forgiveness and transformation and hope. Come to Him by faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this story of Tamar. Tamar forever joined to You. Tamar forever this grandmother of Yours. And I thank You that you worked in the impossibility of that situation. And we are, frankly, we are just puzzled. But you were chasing after us, and you were chasing after her. You worked even in spite of and in the reality of her foolishness and her acting in that impossibility to bring the light of the world into our darkness, to bring Jesus to us. So I pray, Lord, as we continue to reflect, as this story is in our minds this week, as we reflect on what you've done, that you would break our pride if we are more like Judah, that you would lift up our hearts if we're more like Tamar, and that we would give up this comparison kind of righteousness, and we would find our righteousness in you as a gift. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.